Living a life of intention starts within. Dora and I are excited to help you find the path to co-mindfulness living through our co-mindfulness masterclass. Our seven co-mindfulness principles will take you on a remarkable path towards health and happiness. For more information and to sign up for the masterclass, visit comindfulnessproject.com. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. David Starbucks Smith began his tennis career at five years old. He went on to play tennis at UC Berkeley until he left to play professionally for three years. He eventually graduated with a degree in biodynamics, which is integrative biology. Understanding the human body became his passion. David has dedicated his life to helping people rid themselves of chronic pain through a method called Agoscu, a method that restores balance and function to the whole body. Dave is a consultant to teams and players in the NFL, NCAA, ATP, WTA, and to many other just regular people. And he is the author of Ageless Painless Tennis, a bestseller that explores the myths around aging and athletics. Dave, thank you for joining us today on Health Gig. Thanks for the invitation, and it's great to be here. We love your book. Ageless, Painless Tennis. Both Trisha and I have read it and have really learned so much from it. But we all have muscular postural imbalances, no matter what sport we do, not just tennis, and really just being human beings. The premise of your book is that we're all actually fixable. So many of us, including Trisha and I, need fixing. And so is this really true? Yes. What I really like about what you said is that all human beings need it and all human beings are imbalanced inherently. The book was focused really on tennis, but the truth is anyone could benefit from it and anyone could see themselves in the book just by looking in the mirror, essentially, and seeing the imbalances. And it's all fixable. And this was really the premise of the book was that here, I'm going to point out these imbalances that everybody has that you can easily recognize in yourself and you can recognize in others. In fact, the kind of curse of it all is that once you start seeing these imbalances in yourself, you can't not look at other people, your friends and family and your spouses and see their imbalanced shoulders and forward head and turned out feet. And you know, so you can't so turn true. it off. Uh, so true. Because yeah. when I started, my kids are like, you just think you're a posture expert. I'm like, oh, no, no, look, your shoulders are this way and your head exactly like that. But you're right. When you're aware of it, you see it. It's true. And yet everybody can become their own posture expert. And that was a big goal of the book was to empower people to be able to see posture, to learn about posture, and really to then apply it to themselves and their own imbalances. And like I said, I titled the book, you know, Ageless Painless Tennis. But in truth, I had written it originally as Ageless Painless Athletics. And it really could have been Ageless Painless Humans because it really is universal to us all that we develop over balances over time. The tennis piece has to do with your life. If we could just rewind for a minute, you mentioned tennis. I know you had a career in tennis. Could you tell us about that? I started playing tennis at a very young age. I played through the junior circuit, you know, nationally and was one of the top 10 juniors in the country for many years and then ended up getting a scholarship to play at UC Berkeley. At the time, we were three in the country when I started. Played there for three years. And what really started me on this journey in terms of understanding the body and pain was in college. It, it kind of started in high school where I was playing basketball and tennis at the same time. My hips would get really tight and I didn't really know what to do about it. 
But when I got to college, the hips were better, but my back was killing me. So my lower back was always locking up on me. It was always tight. And I would be in the third set of matches and it would just lock down. So it really kind of put me on this journey to kind of figure out why, because the things I I was being told, I was being told to stretch my hamstrings and strengthen my abdominals. And I could do a thousand sit-ups and touch the ground without pain. So I knew that the hamstrings and the abdominals were not the problem. They were already good, but nobody else could tell me kind of what they thought the problem was. And I was getting frustrated. Doctors were offering to snip hip muscles and they were offering to give me all kinds of drugs and medication, which I didn't want any of that. Obviously I didn't want surgery. It struck me that nobody knew why my back hurt. When I turned pro in 94, I played on the tour for three years and I was still struggling off and on. And I finally found this guy named Pete Egoscue. Pete had this clinic in San Diego And I went down there and for the first time, it was an aha moment of, okay, these guys finally understand why I hurt. And I ended up uh, working with Pete for four years and then starting my own clinic in San Francisco and did that for 16 years. So that's kind of the gist of my story. But the journey really started with, like many others, journeys start with pain and trying to figure out how to solve it. You say in your book and, and also in conversations that you know pain isn't something we should ignore, but so often we're quick to take Advil or we're quick to do something, wear a brace or something to eliminate the pain. But you say, listen to your pain, right? The body has a very succinct message system and pain is the best message we could get. It's not the one we necessarily want, that's for sure. But if we didn't have it, and in the book, I kind of talk about some people, a group of people that don't have it. There's a group of people that aren't able to feel pain. The body, just the signal doesn't ever come. And sadly, many of these people don't live very long because they don't get the message to take their hand off the stove or they don't take the message to stop scratching or infections happen and all kinds of things. And so pain is really the message that keeps us alive. The problem is when we're out in the world and we're doing our things, we've been taught to ignore pain or deaden it. And there are obviously times when we want to deaden it, for sure, when we can't function without deadening it, whether that's Advil or whether that's a knee brace or whatever it is. The problem is that you miss often the body's messages. And in the book, I talk about a whisper, a yell, and a scream. The body will whisper to you in the form of some kind of pain. Usually it's a niggle. For example, if you're out gardening and you feel a little just twinge in your back and say, oh, no big deal. And you keep gardening. I've had that before. It'll go away. Well, that's the whisper. And the yell would be more, okay, then you stand up. Oh, muscle cramp, spasm, ow, that hurts. Okay, but you keep going. And that was the yell. But you ignore that or you take Advil or you take a muscle relaxer or whatever it is. The scream is then you're disc herniated and it drops you to the floor and you can't ignore it. This is the problem is that you can't ignore the scream and you don't want to wait for the scream. You want to listen to your body's messages and to the point that we deaden these messages with Advil or with any kind of, not just Advil, but any kind of deadening, whether it's anti-inflammatories or whether it's braces or anything of the like, we run the risk of missing the message. What's worse, we miss the message or we ignore the message altogether. And then we're in real trouble where the scream is probably going to get our attention one way or another. What should we do when we get the, as you call it, the nickel or the whisper? You want to pay attention. You want to start to learn to listen to what your body's trying to tell you. So if you get a niggle in the example I gave, which was your gardening and you feel a little twinge in your back, your body's telling you that something's being overstressed. That overstress is coming due to the position of your body, not just gardening, but an actual, the imbalances that you're bringing to gardening. 
or in the case of tennis, your hamstring twinges. It's a sign that there's too much work and too much pressure and stress on the hamstring. If you ignore it, then of course it could pull more. But to understand it is the next step to understand that what it's really saying is it's saying that it's overworking and that it's compensating for muscles that aren't working. Normally, that means there's something out of position, out of alignment, and that's something that you want to address before things get worse. So I think understanding why the pain is there is really the first step to healing it and to preventing further injury. That understanding comes when really looking first at instead of, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with me, or I'm sick, or I'm diseased, or this is just bad luck. Really, the understanding comes in, this is an imbalance. Your body is just reflecting, the pain is reflecting an imbalance in your body that's very fixable. That's what the book was designed to do, was to help teach you how to recognize the imbalances and then give you some tools to solve them. So when you talk about these imbalances, if you're a person, then you're not really in touch with your body. What are your first steps to kind of become more in touch with your body? And how do you coach people to do that? You want to start recognizing the signs of imbalance. And there are multiple signs of imbalance in the body. One would be feet the turnout. You can just stand up from your chair, close your eyes, get a comfortable stance, look at your feet. And you might notice that one foot's turned out more than another. You might notice that one foot is sitting in front of the other. You might notice that you have more weight on one leg than another. These are all signs of imbalance. Shoes that were out unevenly is imbalance. Women, when one of their shoulder straps starts to fall down on their shoulder, a lot of women who carry purses, they'll notice they can't keep the purse on their shoulder, or they wear their purse on one shoulder all the time. Guys wear wallets in their back pocket. It's the worst thing you could do because you sit on that wallet and it throws your hips out of alignment. There are little things that create some of these imbalances, but at the same time, recognizing them as easy as looking in the mirror. You can look at your shoulders. Are your shoulders level? Are your hips level? Or is one shoulder sitting in front of the other? Are your shoulders rounded from the side view? Has anyone told you that you looks like you're slumping or slouching? Or is your head way forward? And again, this kind of goes back to what we were saying about once you start seeing these things, you see them in everyone. In fact, my fiance is hilarious. We'll be walking down the street. Oh my gosh, look at those knees. Oh my gosh, look at that shoulder. And I turn it off now unless I specifically (laughs) need to look at it. But it is, it's kind of a curse because you can't not see it after a while. I think my mother was before her time on all of this because 60 years ago when I was growing up or 55 years ago, she was constantly saying, throw your shoulders back, stand up straight. So maybe she was before her time on it. Yeah, and she understood it. So yeah. Doro, I think all our mothers were before us. <laughs> I can hear my mother talking in my ear saying, stand up straight. My grandfather used to grab my shoulders and pull them back. And yeah, but yeah, posture has been around for a very long time. And when we talk about posture, there are lots of misinformation out there about what to do about posture. Really, at the end of the day, the book looks specifically at the joint position. And then based on the joint position, We can tell what muscles are overworking, underworking, too tight, too short, too weak, out of balance, essentially. And the exercises trigger the muscles to realign the joints and bones. And that's how it works. So the exercises trigger the muscles to realign the bones and the joints. Muscles move bones. So when you start to rebalance the tension in the muscles, we have this thing called dynamic tension. Dynamic tension is that all the muscles in your body are under equal tension, right to left, front to back, side to side. When you're out of dynamic tension, that means that some muscles are, as I said, too tight or too weak or too short, right? There's an imbalance. And when that imbalance happens, it pulls the joints and the bones out of place. 
So when we go to our traditional doctors and we complain of a knee pain or a hip pain, they're going to treat that, right? And so what you say is, gee, if we could work on the posture, maybe that will relieve that pain, right? And you might not even go as far as even have to have surgery. Is that sort of what you can suggest? Absolutely. That's the goal. Once the pain is set in, the pain is the last step in the line of events that happen. For instance, let's take knee pain, torn meniscus in the knee. The meniscus is the cushion in the knee in between the two bones. So it's the shock absorber. It's the cushion that allows the joint to, allows you to run and jump and twist and turn and all everything without pain. When you tear your meniscus, you'll go see a doctor and the doctor will say, oh, you tore your meniscus and let's do surgery to remove part of the meniscus. Well, the problem is you're not fixing the reason why it tore. Now, unless you were hit by a car or fell off a bike or tackled by a 300 pound lineman, then chances are the meniscus tore because your upper leg bone and lower leg bone were out of alignment. And that misalignment created torque in your knee. And after a while, that torque was enough to create enough friction and enough stress to tear the meniscus. So you want to fix the torque, right? You want to fix the reason for the pain. And when you do, more often than not, despite the condition, meaning despite that torn meniscus or the pulled hamstring or whatever it is, despite the condition, you can actually, by treating the position, you can help the condition. So you can have a torn meniscus and not have pain as long as the knee is aligned correctly and functioning correctly and that dynamic tension is restored. So the doctor goes in and wants to do surgery. I want to go in and I want to fix the reason why it happened. And that's tied into imbalanced, not just knee muscles, but hip muscles. And that's often tied into imbalanced shoulder muscles and trunk muscles as well. That's very hopeful. And what I love about your book is that it's so very practical that way. For example, if you do have a torn meniscus, which both Trisha and I happen to have, and you just go into the table of contents, you have it right there, torn meniscus, and then you turn and you have laid out very clearly, very easily without any equipment, things you can do right in your own home to strengthen that area, which I think is really helpful because people really want to know what to do. And Doro, you're right. When I wrote the book, I did it with the idea that if someone didn't want to read from the first page to the last page, if they had a pain, that they could just jump in and go right to that pain. The idea is not to treat the pain, even though the book has some of the pains listed and here's what you do. It's actually treating, again, the cause for the pain, which is the alignment, right? It's treating the position of your body not treating the pain. And physical therapy does a really good job of helping people rehab from injuries and things like that. Physical therapy goes in and they, if you have knee pain, they'll strengthen the muscles around the knee. That's not what the book does. The book goes in and the book looks at the position of the knee. It's treating the position of the foot, the position of the knee, the position of the hip, the position of the shoulders. It's treating the body as a unit, right? Because the knee is part of a much bigger unit. And if we just focus on the knee, then we could miss all the other imbalances that are around and probably creating the knee pain. What do you have to say about arthritis and osteoarthritis? Arthritis is arthra, which means joint and itis is inflammation. So strictly put, it's just inflammation of the joint. That's just a descriptive term. Where we get confused is that the term is often thrown around as a disease in itself. Oh, I have arthritis in that knee. I just have arthritis. I have arthritis in my back. I have arthritis in my neck or my ankle or my feet or my hands or wherever it is. And arthritis gets treated as this kind of bad luck thing that I got rather than understanding that arthritis 
is just a term that says inflammation in the joint. And we have to look at what caused it again. Arthritis is caused, just simple osteoarthritis is usually more often than not caused by misaligned joints. When you have, let's take a knee joint, the upper leg bone and lower leg bone, they're supposed to act as a hinge joint. So the knee joint is a hinge joint, meaning it's like a door. It goes one way. You bend your knee and you straighten your knee. That's how it's designed to work. When the bones are misaligned or when the joint is misaligned, then instead of acting as that hinge joint, when you bend your knee, instead there comes rotation and torque on the knee or the upper leg bone, lower leg bones, they don't align very well. And what happens is all the pressure and stress is put on one part of the knee rather than distributed throughout the entire knee. And when that happens, then that part of the knee wears away sooner. And as soon as it starts to wear away, you get this inflammatory response from the body that's trying to heal it and then arthritis. So the knee changes position first, that creates friction, that creates irritation and arthritis. You have to back out of that, restore the position of the knee, restore the position of the joint, and the inflammation then can calm down and go away. That's the goal. What about arthritis? This is maybe a different kind, but when people have arthritis in their hands and their fingers, you see it in the hands. And you're speaking a lot of rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease. It's a response that's the body attacking its own joints. That's a different type of arthritis. Now, here's the thing about rheumatoid arthritis. I've worked with lots of people with rheumatoid. The question becomes how much of the arthritis is the disease? How much of it is also misalignment? So, you know, to the best that you can, when we work with these people, we help them realign their joints so that they have the best chance of at least taking stress off the joint. Then we'll see how much is rheumatoid and how much isn't. There's a chance that you can be helped definitely to some degree, even if you have rheumatoid with the exercises. No guarantee, but often, you know, we've seen some people get some good relief from it. Arthritic hands and arthritic wrists and elbows are often a sign of a misaligned shoulder. The shoulder joint is designed to rotate in all kinds of planes. If the shoulder is stuck and not able to do its job, then something has to compensate. And that almost always is the elbow. And if the elbow is compensating by over-rotating, then that means the wrist is also following suit. And that can affect all the joints, including the hand. If you break a bone, right, and it heals itself, what happens now? Is it just by definition not lined up? It depends. You know, it, it, the, if you break a bone, generally speaking, the doctors will go in and they'll set it in to make sure that it's straight. And so usually that's enough. Sometimes you get a bone that if it does stay misaligned, then yeah, I mean, then you've got a misaligned bone and you've got an imbalance inherent in that and you have to work around that. But there's that sort of a permanent thing. So you wouldn't really be able to like align it back up again, or, or I guess you would, everything would then support it? Once the bone breaks, if it doesn't heal correctly and it, the bone is now deformed, well, that's a deformed bone. The doctors at that point, that's a chore for them. They're either going to have to re-break it to set it to get it equal again, or you're going to have to work around the deformity, hoping that it doesn't change much function of the joint above and below it. And what about like post-surgery if somebody has a hip replacement and they didn't do anything on their posture? Well, that's a good question because hip degeneration is, again, it's a postural issue. A hip will lose its cartilage and start to degenerate when the hip is misaligned. The hip joint sits within the acetabulum. So the acetabulum is the pelvis comes in and meets the femur. And the femur is the big leg bone and you've got your pelvis. So the leg bone and the pelvis are supposed to meet 
forming the hip joint. When the pelvis is rotated or oftentimes it'll rotate and twist and elevate, then it changes where the stress is hitting that leg bone, that femur. And so instead of the stress of the body, when you're walking and running and standing and sitting, instead of the stress being distributed equally throughout the head of the femur, it's distributed unequally. Some parts are being more stressed than others. And as I said, in the case of the knee, when you have a misaligned knee, just like you have a misaligned hip, some parts are being stressed, overly stressed, then they wear away faster. And that's what creates that degeneration. The cartilage starts to wear away because it's being compromised in one part. And eventually you lose the cartilage and eventually it's bone on bone. And then you get your hip replaced to your question. What happens when hip replacement? Well, let's say you go, you have a hip replacement, but you didn't solve the elevation or rotation of the hip. Well, you still have an imbalanced body that usually then shows up somewhere else, usually in the lower back, or sometimes even in the opposite hip, the pain can move. Now that you've restored function to the hip joint, just because you have a new hip, you still have that imbalance and something else is still compensating and at risk. That makes sense. One thing I found fascinating with your book is that you address bunions. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought bunions like grew off your foot. I mean, I don't know. Or maybe your shoe was too tight or something. What's up with bunions? Yeah. Well, you don't have any bunions, do you, Dora? Well, I'm just saying. (laughs) I know people. You know a friend. friend. I have a friend. Bunions are common. Nobody likes them. A bunion forms in many ways. Yes, you've heard about the shoes that are too tight. And what starts to happen is that the big toe starts to push over and cross over the toe next to it. Then you see this big lump on the side of the toe. A bunion really what it is essentially a callus. It's its body's way of creating tissue to protect the bone. Just like if you're a tennis player or a golfer or a weightlifter or a gardener and you build a callus on your hand, callus is there to protect your hand right? So that because of friction that was on the hand, the body has a brilliant way of saying, well, let's go protect the area. A bunion is the same thing. It's your body's way of protecting your foot so that it doesn't break. It builds up tissue. So the body's doing exactly what it's designed to do. Again, you have to ask the question of why did it have to do it? That always has to do with, yes, tight shoes, but more than tight shoes, even without shoes, when the foot starts to turn out, the foot is designed to point straight ahead so that when we walk, we hit heel, ball, toe, and we over all five toes equally. When the foot slightly turns out, so when it loses its natural design position, it turns out and then instead of hitting heel, ball, toe, and over all five toes, it hits on the outside of the heel, then it rolls in and then rolls off of the inside of the big toe. And if you do that over and over and over again, Eventually, that body starts to adapt. It starts to push the big toe over the smaller toe. And now you're creating friction. Every time you walk, you're going over that bony part of the big toe. And that eventually starts to form a bunion because the body comes to the rescue saying, there's too much stress. I've got to protect it. And let's form some tissue there. Bunions are often, more often than not, the sign of a foot that is not functioning correctly and not in line with the knee joint as well. So once you get proper alignment, will your bunion go away or is that callus there? No, it can. Your body, again, when there's no need for the bone anymore, it can go away. It's just like a callus. If you stop playing tennis or you stop doing the things that created that callus, callus goes away because the body says, okay, I don't need it anymore. Because remember, our bodies adapt to stimulus always, whether we sit or we stand or we run, 
if we want to become weightlifters, we can and look like weightlifters. We can go in the gym and look like weightlifters. If we want to look like skinny runners, we can go on runs every day and look like skinny runners. Or if we want to be couch potatoes, right? <laughs> but that's the beauty of it is that our bodies will adapt to the stimulus we give it. If you give it the right stimulus, the body loves you and responds. If you give it not good stimulus, the body also responds, but maybe not in the way that you hope. I have one other question from a friend. Yeah, <laughs> a friend wants to know. No, I'm just kidding. No, this is about ice and heat. You hear, oh, you should ice your knee and everything. I'm about to buy an ice machine for my knee, but then, you know, maybe I should put heat. So when there's inflammation, often ice will come to the rescue because it will calm down some of the inflammation. If you need more blood flow to the area, then obviously heat. I tell people, try them both and see how they feel. Okay, there's no downside really to either. Let's say your knee hurts and you try icing it and it feels better. Well, that tells you everything you need to know. If your knee hurts, you ice it and it doesn't feel any better, but you get in a shower, a warm shower and you walk out, oh my gosh, I feel a lot better. Then that is a, another message that you should listen to. Ice and heat, I would try them each. Generally speaking with muscles, heat generally feels better. With joints, ice generally feels better and can do better. But again, I encourage you to do both. There's a big kind of movement out there about not using ice, that ice is bad because it decreases blood flow, that it slows healing. I completely understand the physiology and the anatomy involved, and I'm going to completely disagree with the actual application of it. We've been using ice for a long time for our injuries. And I worked with the San Francisco 49ers for two seasons and saw heat and ice being applied equally. I've had my own injuries that have required both. And I can tell you there's a time and a place for heat. And there is definitely a time and a place also for ice. Ice is not the devil. You're going to be fine if you ice your joint. I like the idea that we're thinking outside the box and saying ice is decreasing blood flow, which could be decreasing the healing response. I just don't like the application for it in all things. It's like anything. It's not all black and white. There is gray. There is a time and a place for it, just like heat. You know, we hear the saying now, sitting is a new smoking. And you say sitting is a new smoking, only it will kill you earlier. Can you tell us what you meant by that? We live in a box. We get up and we sit down at our tables and eat breakfast. And then we get in our cars and we drive to work. Well, not these days. Yeah. <laughs> um, or we're still sitting on our, on our couch or at our desk to go to work or get some work done. And then we get on a bicycle and we sit on an exercise bike. And then we come home and we sit on the couch again and watch TV and we sit for dinner and so on and so on. Right. So our lives are spent kind of in a very limited range of motion. Sitting itself isn't the bad part, it's just the stimulus that we get throughout the day. And if we get enough varied stimulus, we can sit as much as we want. Sitting isn't bad. But if we don't get enough varied stimulus, then like anything else, our bodies adapt to the sitting. We start to lose muscle in our glutes and all the muscles that aren't being worked and aren't being used. We lose muscle and we start to lose that muscle or we start to change muscle tension. We know that the body then changes position. So hips start to tuck under. Spines start to round forward, heads start to move forward, shoulders round forward, arms rotate in, right? We start to look like we've been sitting all day long. And we do that over and over and over again for months and years. And then our bodies look like it and pay the price for it. So our bodies need rich motion and stimulus always, every day. You don't have to you know, run and jump and do cartwheels all day long, but you do have to move and you have to move enough. 
the question often becomes is what is enough movement? Well, that depends on your body and depends on you. For me, enough movement might be 30 minutes of yoga a day or 30 minutes of the exercises that I give a day or an hour walk. Motion is different for everyone, but the idea is to mix it up, vary it and do it as often as you can. So that sitting doesn't become a problem. Because like I said, sitting isn't the problem. It's just the sitting without the other varied motion really becomes the problem. And when we sit, all our systems are affected over a long period of time. Again, it's about moving, not about sitting. It's more about the lack of moving than it is about the sitting. I have a question about weightlifting. How does that factor into our joints and muscles? And what do you think about it? I think that there is a time and a place, obviously, for strengthening our bodies, for sure. The issue that we often see is that people will go into the weight room imbalanced and then come out of the weight room more imbalanced. And the reason for that is that our bodies are put under demand. So in the form of weightlifting or running or carrying something, we run to our strongest parts. If we're imbalanced, say we have one shoulder that's dropped lower than the other, and we go and we do bench press one shoulder is functioning very differently than the other one in the bench press because they're in totally different positions. You know, you're strengthening certain muscles on one side that aren't being strengthened on the other side in the same way. And that's what I mean by if you go into the weight room with an imbalanced body, you're coming out with a more imbalanced body more often than not. We have a term that says straighten before you strengthen. Restore balance and restore joint position the way that's designed to be before you go in and strengthen it. Then you can do anything you want. Like I said, our bodies need stimulus. Weightlifting is just more stimulus, which can be tremendously beneficial and helpful, and everyone can do it. And yet it can also be tremendously detrimental to your posture, but also to your overall misalignment that eventually is just creating more pain than it's really helping you in the long run. That makes a lot of sense because you're right. I mean, oftentimes people are get really enthused about going to lift and there's no attention to how I'm doing it or how you're standing there. And you're saying that just drills it into that not good posture. And form is only part of it. The other part of it is what we do in the gym, which tends to be the same exercises over and over again. For guys, we tend to do lots of bench presses to work our chest, push-ups, and maybe some pull-ups, but we work on chest and biceps and abs. That's really what us guys like to work because they're the mirror muscles, right? When we look in the mirror, they look pretty good. It's not a balanced routine. Women are just as guilty of it for other muscles that they focus on or the same machines that we all use over and over again, because we know them. Oftentimes we don't know what to do in the gym. So we just use the machines that we, or the weights that we know how to do that we're comfortable with. But again, our bodies need varied stimulus and motion. So when we keep repeating the same stimulus, we start to look like we've been repeating the same stimulus. And if it's imbalanced stimulus, then we come out more imbalanced. What about stretching? Static stretching versus dynamic stretching? In terms of static stretching, dynamic stretching, there is a gray area there. And the gray area means that static stretching is absolutely fine to do. You can do it. Very few people hurt themselves static stretching, but it all came about with a study that said that after static stretching, your muscles were weaker than they were before you went into the static stretching. So that means that if I'm about to do a sprint and I stretch my hamstrings, then I stretch my hamstrings and then I go and I do the sprint. This study said that the hamstrings were then weaker than before and more apt to get injured. We all believe the study, no problem, great. Here's the thing. All it takes to reactivate the muscles back to the strength that it needs to be is just to bend your knee a couple times. You just need to reactivate the hamstring a few times 
to wake the body up, to remind the brain that the joint is in a new position because of the stretch. And as soon as the brain recognizes that, then you're off and running. So static stretching is not bad. Dynamic stretching was designed to warm the body up. And again, the problem is if you warm the body up while it's still imbalanced, then you go into the activity just as imbalanced or the dynamic stretch runs the risk of injuring you even more so than any static stretch you could do. The idea in going into these activities and the goal with the book was to give you exercises that rebalanced your body, got you straighter and more balanced before going into the activity so that you had less chance of injury, less chance of getting hurt and more chance of playing better, better tennis or better golf or whatever that is. Static stretching gets a bad rap. And the truth is I've never seen anyone get hurt from static stretching. And when you hold these positions for longer periods of time, the body often unwinds. It's like peeling the layers of an onion. So if you go on your back and you put your legs straight up the wall, that's a common exercise that most people know. You push your knees towards the wall. You feel a stretch in the back of the legs. And what'll happen is that stretch will move. It will change. It will evolve. If you hold it for a minute, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, that stretch then moves, either it disappears altogether, or it moves into a different part of the body that also needs to be released. It has the effect of really unwinding the parts that the tension that was there that shouldn't be there. So when you come up from this static stretch, now you are more balanced, your muscles are under much more equal balanced tension, and you feel a ton better and your posture is better. So the idea with the exercise in the book, the reason I wanted to address it was because I didn't want people to think this is a static stretch. There are some static stretches in there, but they're designed that way on purpose to unravel these layers of the onion, meaning unravel the tension that's in your body that you've been holding for a long time. And that can take time. It can take a minute or two minutes or three minutes, or sometimes 20 minutes, depending on the exercise. How does hydration fit into muscular postural balance? Here we are with our water. Everyone's drinking. Mm -hmm. Um, Muscles are about 70% water. Our bodies are about 70% water. The discs that are in our spines are about 70% water. Our cells, every cell in our body is composed of water. So when we are dehydrated, take the example of the spinal discs. When we're dehydrated, then these discs become more brittle. We know that when anything is more brittle, it's easier to break they become vulnerable. And if your spine is out of alignment, misaligned, big muscle imbalance, and you're dehydrated at the same time, that's when you run the biggest risk of herniating a disc or rupturing a disc, which is when the disc just breaks apart. There are lots of reasons to hydrate from a sports standpoint. You have to be hydrated. You simply cannot play your best in any sport if you're not completely hydrated. Because as I said, the muscles are made up of literally 70 to 80% water. So these cells require water to function and to do their job. And without that water, then the muscle becomes also more brittle, similar to the disc, and they tear easier. You're much more vulnerable as a result. So you got to drink. How do you know when you're hydrated enough? Lots of people will say different things, but you know that if you can pee and the urine is clear, you're probably hydrated or clear enough. If it's not, if it's more yellow, then that means you're probably a little dehydrated. If you're thirsty, you're already dehydrated. So you actually want to drink throughout the day, even if you're not thirsty, keep hydrating. Because once you're thirsty, your body knows that you're dehydrated already. And it's giving you the message 
to drink so that you rehydrate. You can rehydrate, but you don't want to wait that long if you can help it. Water is so crucial to every one of our systems. The less we get of it, then the less functional our systems are. Every system, the circulatory system, the digestive system, the lymph system, everything you can name works on water. I think you're indicating that we should really make it, obviously make it a priority to intake water, but also even maybe even create a water plan. I mean, it's that important, right? So you get up in the morning, you drink your water. You just have periods of the time that you drink your water. And you even say, if you get up in the middle of the night, that's okay. Because you're saying, get your water. Yeah, nobody wants to get up in the middle of the night. But at the same time, if it means you're hydrated and you wake up refreshed the next morning because you are hydrated, then it makes a big difference. There are so many signs of dehydration. Obviously, thirst is one. Fatigue is another. Loss of focus. Decreased performance in a sport. You know, lots of different signs, even hunger to some degree can be a sign of being dehydrated and your body's crying out for water. All these signs we can miss and think that we just need to eat something. Well, usually we need to drink something. The ice in your scotch does not count as hydrogen. <laughs> That's right, Rob. <laughs> what about the importance of the core? Do you talk about that? Like it's important to have a strong core or what's your perspective on all that? Core strength is a term that's been thrown around and widely misunderstood. Well, let me ask you, how do you think of core? What muscles or what do you think of when you think of core? I think of the muscles in our center, like around our ribs and stuff. And in the back, like the whole part here, right? Yeah. You kind of think of a girdle that's around your waist. So most people think of the abdominals and sometimes the back muscles and sometimes the obliques and sometimes the glutes. Core really, core strength isn't about strength. What core strength really is, is about balance. In other words, the front side of the body should be under equal tension with the back side of the body. The abdominal should be under equal tension with the back muscles. The glute muscles should be under equal tension with the hip flexors. You have this balance that's set up. And when the muscles are balanced, then they're working together as a unit, not only to move your body, but to stabilize your body core is about stabilization so that you're able to do all the activities you can do without getting hurt. People think that if I just strengthen my abs, 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 then I'll have a strong core. It's absolutely 100% not true. And the reason that is, is because your abdominals, again, are designed to work in conjunction with your back muscles and your glute muscles. But if your posture is compromised, so if you have rounded shoulders, if your upper back is rounded forward, your shoulders rounded forward, that means automatically that your abdominals are now under unequal tension with your back muscles. And when that happens, I don't care how many abdominal sit-ups you do, you're just now strengthening the imbalance instead of understanding that core is about balance. The other thing about core that is misunderstood is that if you have misaligned hips, so if you have one hip that's higher or one shoulder that's lower, you automatically have an imbalance between one side of the body and the other. And that imbalance creates imbalanced tension on your spine. So if my right hip is higher than my left, people say I have one leg longer. Okay, it's usually not true. It just means that the hip is rotated and the leg's in a different position than the other. It's just a muscle imbalance. But if you come in with that muscle imbalance, that muscle imbalance creates different tension on each side of the spine. And when there's imbalanced tension on the spine, you have imbalanced tension on the discs of the spine. And when there's imbalanced tension on the discs of the spine, that one side of the disc starts to push out on the other side and you get a herniated bulging disc. 
despite all the sit-ups you do, despite all the back extensions you do, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the imbalance pressure on the spine due to that shoulder that was misaligned and or the hip, the pelvis that was misaligned. So you cannot have a strong core if you have imbalanced hip muscles or imbalanced shoulder muscles. People don't look at the shoulder muscles as being part of the core, and they absolutely are. It's imperative you have balanced shoulder blades and balanced shoulders in order to have a stable, strong core that keeps you able to do all the things you want to do without running the risk of injury. Are people genetically predisposed to have imbalance injuries or is it the sport you choose or talk about that? One of the first chapters I have in the book is about these myths that we carry with us around pain and aging. One of the myths, of course, is that age is the reason for our diminished performance or our pain. I ran a clinic for the last 20 years that people would come in with all kinds of aches and pains. They come in with knee pain and they say, yeah, I think I'm just getting old. And the first question is, well, how old's the other knee? <laughs> and you know, you, you have to take a step back. You, you have to look at it and examine is, is your belief that it's old age, is that really valid? Really, it never is. And the reason I say never is because usually it's one-sided pain, even if it isn't, how do we know that it's really age? It's really just position over time, not age. So the position is the real problem. You keep it there for a longer period of time, and now you've got an even bigger problem. And the position is very fixable. So a lot of times someone will come in with back pain, same thing. How much pain do you have? Well, it's a level eight pain. What do you think the problem is? Well, I think I'm just getting old. Okay, now put your hands behind your head and pull your elbows back. Does that change the pain? Well, yes, I, it, it's gone. <laughs> Okay, well, did you just get 20 years younger or is the problem not age? The answer is obvious. So age is really a, a scapegoat that we use that unfortunately takes away our power to do anything about the pain. It really leaves us victims and powerless, and it doesn't enable us to be responsible for our health when we blame age or genetics because they're out of our control. We're all aging, <laughs> hopefully, um, right. and we all have our genetics that we can't do a dang thing about. Why not? choose to focus on what we can do something about, which is realigning our bodies, changing the position of our bodies, rebalancing, taking responsibility for our health, getting varied stimulus and movement, eating the right foods and paying attention to our body's messages. And as we do that, then that's the best we can do. And I think we'll do pretty well. We'll feel pretty good. It reminds me of what they said at my dad's funeral, which was die young as late as possible. Sounds like that could be your philosophy too. The goal really is, of course, we're all going to age. And at some point, we're going to age enough where we're going to stop moving, stop breathing. But before that happens, we want to live our best lives the best we can. You know, we want to be able to be active and moving and engaging with our families and doing the activities we love for as long as humanly possible before we go. My grandfather died when he was, I think, 84. He died of pancreatic cancer. But up until the day he died, he gardened every day, he walked every day, and before he was uh, stricken with the cancer, he was diagnosed, and then two months later, he died. It was that fast. You know, no one wants to die of anything, especially something as hideous as cancer, but at the same time, if we can stay as active, that active, almost up to the day we die, then I think that would be a nice goal to have. Guy Dave, thank you. This has been incredible and such great information for all of us to think about and actually begin to do. I know it's been very helpful for me. So you've been a great teacher. And so thank you for that. 
Well, thanks so much for having me, you guys. It's been a real pleasure. I hope you enjoyed the book. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. To learn more on how to live a co-mindfulness life, visit comindfulnessproject.com.